0: So we're carrying on the series this morning in our series on Revelation, and if you have uh, just joined us for today, uh, you've got a little bit of catching up to do, just a little bit, maybe 12 or so messages to listen to quickly online, should be able to knock those off this afternoon, you'll be back up to speed, you'll be fine. Uh, we do have, by the way, Revelation Remixed, so Sunday nights, we're uh, filming the messages. Uh, apologies to those of you that showed up last Sunday night, the rain on the roof of the hub got the better of us, we couldn't film. Uh, it was too loud, so we had to cancel that one. But we are on again next Sunday night. That'll be this morning's message and next Sunday's message. Uh, we film those for Shine TV and a good chance, too, to ask questions and dialogue on the, uh, on the messages afterwards, and there's some really good conversation that comes out there. So come along to that. We'll plug it again next Sunday so you know what's happening. Uh, we've got resources online. There's study sheets that go up every week uh, for the messages. You can access those from our home page. There's more recommended readings, so keep on engaging. You know, I know the stories coming out of the life groups are great, You guys are chewing this stuff over, you're interacting on it, and and you're wrestling with how it applies to life. It's so good to hear all of these rich conversations happening through life groups in the church. And if you're not connected to a life group, it's a good plug, it's a good invitation, get into one, find one, find one maybe that's studying Revelation, if that's what you're interested in right now, and uh, join the journey. Not even halfway yet, so there's plenty to go. Now, this morning, we are in Revelation chapter 10. And just while you're turning there, let me quickly give you the run-up, okay, because Revelation does unfold as a story, it does unfold as a narrative, and it's just helpful to situate these passages in the whole context of the drama so far. So we have seen, back in chapter 4 and 5, we've seen this majestic heavenly throne room scene with God on the throne, and the Lamb, Jesus the Lamb, who comes and takes the scroll from the Father's hand, and He opens the scroll, and this triggers a whole series of destructive judgments upon the earth. Uh, The six seals are opened, and then just before the seventh seal, there's an interlude. John takes us off in a different direction before coming back and giving us the opening of the seventh seal. And then, in a sense, the the stage is cleared, and the actors disappear, and then another scene comes forth, which tells the same story, but now in a different way, through the prayers of God's people going up in Revelation 8. And then these these trumpet judgments that come forth, the blowing of seven trumpets, which also bring havoc and destruction upon the earth. And you have six of these trumpet judgments through Revelation 8 and 9. And then in chapter 10, exactly the same thing happens as happened after the sixth seal was opened. You get another interlude. So there's a very strong pattern here. Six seals and then an interlude in the seventh one. And now six trumpet judgments and then an interlude. And then we're going to have the seventh one. So this morning, this is the interlude. It's the interlude after the sixth trump- trumpet judgment before we have that great finale. And the interlude takes a couple of chapters, but it's still very important, even though in some ways it seems a bit disconnected to what's just come. John's going to use this opportunity to tell us some very important things about his role and our role in this whole story. So Revelation chapter 10, it's a shorter chapter. Let's read it. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Don't you wish we knew what that was? Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, and the earth and all that is in them, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. (coughs) When I was in sixth form at school, year 12, I was in a school drama production called The Real Inspector Hound. It was pretty cool. It was uh, just a small little production, but it was set in the uh, genre of a classic whodunit. And so if you imagine yourselves in the audience, on the stage there was this country house scene and there was a drama unfolding on the stage. But then behind the stage, there were a row of chairs which actually represented the audience of the play that was going on on stage. And my role was a theatre critic. So I was sitting in this row of chairs behind the stage with another theatre critic and we were talking about what was happening on stage as the drama progressed. So there's actually two worlds going on here. There's the world of the play. This done it is unfolding and people are trying to figure out where this dead body on stage came from. And then there's me and this other guy standing, sitting backstage, and we're having our own musings about the play that's going on on stage, making our own comments about it, getting uh, wrapped up in our own personal struggles and having this whole interaction. And then at one point in the drama, all well, the characters clear the stage and there's a telephone on stage, and it starts ringing. And it rings and rings and rings and rings. And eventually my character gets so frustrated with the telephone ringing that I get up out of my seat and I walk onto the stage and pick up the phone. And it turns out that the phone call is for the other theater critic. So he comes on stage and it's his wife on the phone. And just as he takes the phone call, the action of the play resumes and we get trapped in the play. So now we're in this play and we're, we're acting out parts in the story and we're suddenly caught up in the drama. But at the same time, there's this bizarre world of us being theater critics. And it turns out the dead body is actually one of our fellow movie critics or theatre critics, and so there's this mingling of worlds. There's the who done it still going on, but then there's our lives and us as theatre critics woven somehow into the story, and it all gets mashed up together. It was quite an intriguing concept. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Never really started my acting career, but it was good. It was a good time. And as I was reflecting on that this week, I thought, you know, it's a little bit like a little bit like what's happening to John, the author of Revelation, in this chapter ten, because for John. Everything changes in this chapter. Up until this point, John has basically been an observer. He's been reporting on the facts. He's been watching these spectacular visions unfold. He's been like a reporter, writing stuff down, furiously writing, so that he can pass on to his audience what what he's observed. But now in chapter 10, all that changes. And this is John's phone call scene. Suddenly he gets a call from a mighty angel. And he finds himself in the course of this chapter woven into the story. From chapter 10 on, John is no longer a spectator. He's a participant for the rest of the book. He's caught up in the drama now. He's a character in the very story that he's telling. And it all starts for John in chapter 10 when he sees this mighty angel coming down from heaven. He probably should have known. When he sees a mighty angel, you know something's happening in Revelation. He's probably sighing. There's not another mighty angel. Had a few of those already. Here comes a mighty angel down from heaven to earth. And this mighty angel places one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Now, this is important because what that signals to us is that there's a scene change here. In fact, there's a location change. Ever since chapter 4, John has been given the perspective of heaven. He has been seeing things unfold from a heavenly perspective. Even if it's happening on earth, John's still looking at it from heaven. Now in chapter 10, this changes, and John is transported to an earthly perspective. He is seeing events unfold from it. So he sees an angel coming down to earth. The angel stands on the earth and on the sea, representing the fact this is a very earthy vision. This is from the perspective of humanity, and that's important for what comes next. So this angel comes down from heaven. He appears here before John, and he's holding in his hand a little scroll. Verse 2, he's holding a little scroll which lies open in his hand. Now, if you've been tracking with the storyline of Revelation up to this point, you might remember back that in Revelation chapter 5, there was another scroll. There was a scroll that was held in the hand of God the Father. And the Lamb, representing Jesus, came and took that scroll. We talked about that 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 scroll reflected and represented God's redemptive plan for the world, God's plan to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Jesus comes and takes that scroll because he's the one that's going to put that plan into effect. He is the one that's going to outwork God's plan of salvation. Now, the question is, is this scroll in Revelation 10 the same scroll as we saw back in Revelation 5? And I tend to think it is. It's different views on this, but I tend to think it's the same scroll, but from a different perspective. Back in Revelation 5... We saw the scroll, God's redemptive plan, from the perspective of heaven. That's the whole point of John being in heaven. He sees the fullness of this redemptive plan. He sees the full comprehensive scope and detail of God's plan to establish his kingdom. That's what the scroll symbolizes. That's the plan insofar as it's enacted and taken hold of and worked out by Jesus. And now in Revelation 10, what John sees is the same scroll, but from earthly perspective. He sees the same scroll, but now from a human perspective, and that's why it's referred to as a little scroll. It's a bit smaller, because John's perspective on the the plan is a little bit more provisional. It's a little bit more limited. John doesn't receive the whole comprehensive detail of God's plan, and and even what he does receive, he's not commissioned to pass on everything. You see that in the opening of these, or the speaking of these seven thunders. It's an intriguing little reference in Revelation, the voices of the seven thunders, and John's about to write it down, And he hears a voice that says, no, no, don't write that one down. Seal it up. And the amount of ink that has been spilt by commentators trying to figure out what did the seven thunders say. I wonder what they said. Maybe that was the exact date of Jesus' return. And we missed it because John's told he can't write that one down. Maybe it was this. The point is we don't know. That's the whole point. I don't know. You don't know. John knew, but he couldn't tell us. Not everything that John received, he was commissioned to pass on. That's why it's a little scroll. It's not the fullness of the big scroll. Only some of what John receives he's going to pass on. So this is God's redemptive plan insofar as John receives it, insofar as John passes it on to his churches in these great cities of the Mediterranean. This is what they heard. Basically for John, that scroll was more or less the book of Revelation. It was more or less the prophecy that he was receiving and he's commissioned to pass it on. And from our perspective, we don't see the full scope of God's redemptive plan. We don't see the whole picture. We certainly don't see all of the future. But we do see a lot. We do have a lot. There's a lot that God has chosen to reveal to us. In fact, you could argue we we have more than even John did. John had the book of Revelation. That's what he passed on. We've got the book of Revelation, and we've got 65 other books as well. We've got the whole of the Old Testament, which John also had, of course. We've got the rest of the New Testament, some of which John wrote. We've got the Gospels. We've got the letters of the the New Testament written by Paul and Peter. We've got the fullness of God's revealed Word now. And for us, this is the little scroll. This is our little scroll. This book, the Bible. This is God's redemptive plan For humanity and creation insofar as he's chosen to reveal it to us we don't have the whole story we don't see the full picture but it's still the same plan same plan that the lamb took out of the father's hand same scroll that the angel passed along to John here it is this is God's redemptive plan not a book of instructions not a book of moral commandments not a manual for life not a list of promises not a list of principles, none of that. This is God's redemptive plan for the world. This is God's redemptive story, God's true story for the whole world. This is the story of what God has done right from creation and before, right through to new creation. It's a renewal of all things, centered around the person of Jesus, whose death and resurrection provides the touchstone for the whole story, gives meaning to the whole story. And now we're drawn into this story through him. It's a living story, of which we become a part. That's the beauty and the breadth of this story that we have, God's redemptive plan. And notice that when John gets it, the scroll is open. Why is it open? Because what happened back in in Revelation 4 and 5? Jesus took the scroll and he opened it. So now by the time it gets to John, it's open, which reinforces to me that we're talking about the same scroll. Jesus opened it, and now John gets the opened version. It's a great reminder that it's not John putting this plan into motion. John's not the main character of the story. John's not the one driving the action. You and I are not driving the action. We're not the main characters of the story. The Lamb is the main character. The Lamb is the one who opened the scroll. The Lamb of God, Jesus, the Son of God, He's the one who puts this incredible, redemptive, renewing story of God into motion. He is the one with the authority to carry it out. He's the one with the power to enact it. He's the lamb with the plan. He's the one who's going to work this thing out. We are not the ones with the plan. We have another role. We have a different role. And this is where it gets a little bit strange. Because John says, well, there's a voice that says to John, go and take the scroll. And he says to the angel, Can I have the scroll? And the angel turns to him and says, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. That passage from verse 9 onwards is built really heavily on a vision in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. God did the same thing to that prophet, Ezekiel. He showed him a scroll. He handed him a scroll out of heaven and said, take this and eat it. And it'll be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And you just have to appreciate for a moment the the brilliant creative genius here of God, don't you? I mean, God could quite easily have said to Ezekiel, said to John, this is the message. Got a pen? Write it. It's what I want to say to you. This is what, what I want you to pass on. Here's the message. Here's the deal. Proclaim this. Dictation style. I mean, that would have been reliable. That would have been logical. That would have been good, sensible stuff to do. God doesn't do it. God creates drama. God creates a scene. God creates a picture. God says, here's a scroll, eat it. Isn't it beautiful? Here's a scroll, consume it. And he holds out the scroll to John and he says, I don't want you to observe the action anymore. I don't want you just to watch this stuff. I want you to cross that invisible line from audience to stage member. And I want you to become part of the action." I want you to eat this. I want you to, I want to get the story into you, John, so that I can get you into the story. I want you to consume this scroll so you become consumed by it and you become drawn into the very story that you are narrating. I want you to eat this book. Get it into your bones, John, is what God's saying. And it's exactly the same invitation that God gives us when it comes to the Scriptures. God doesn't want this to be a book that is separate to you, just sitting there at a distance from you, that you observe, that you read, and that you understand. God is holding this book in front of you, as it were, and saying, take it and eat it. It's an interesting parallel there to communion, isn't it? When Jesus said to his disciples, take and eat, this is my body. And now you picture the living Jesus saying to us, take this, pick up your knife and fork, eat it. We're not called to be passive spectators of the story that's told in this. We're called to be participants. We are actors on the stage. We are woven into this story through the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we give our lives to him, we are part of the drama now. We're part of the story. We're helping to move the story forward. And God says, I want you to deeply, deeply internalize this book. I want you to Don't just taste it. I want you to get this into your muscle tissue. I want you to get this into your nerve endings. I want you to get this into your bones. I want you to metabolize this book so that it is absorbed so deeply into the fiber of your being, just like your food is, that it actually comes out in who you are and you're speaking, you're thinking, and you're acting. I want you to ingest this word. Soak it up. Consume it. Eat this book. And that is going to take a bit of a different approach to the Bible than the one that we're used to. Because we tend to prefer, when it comes to the Bible, we tend to prefer tasting to consuming. Quite good tasters of Scripture. Not so good at consuming it. Our son Joshua is just like this with his food. Much better at tasting it, especially the vegetables. We had this dinner the other night. It was a lovely beef stroganoff that Anna had made. She outdid herself on this dish. And it was this beautiful beef and then slices of mushrooms in there as well. And we're trying desperately to convince Josh to have some mushrooms as well. And he was putting up a big fight, wouldn't have a bar of mushrooms. So we tried the uh, tomato sauce tactic. Some of you may be familiar with this. You cover the food in so much tomato sauce, it's actually consumed by the sauce. It becomes more sauce than food. And he was very reluctant, but then we promised him, look, because he'd eaten all his meat, we said, if you have a slice of mushroom, we'll give you some more beef off our plate, but you have to have a piece of mushroom. So reluctantly, in covering in sauce, he, he took the mushroom and popped it in his mouth and chewed it up. <coughs> so Anna then gave him a piece of beef, which he very willingly stuck in his mouth and started eating. And as we watched him, he starts chewing this piece of beef and whoop, out popped the mushroom. <laughs> like a little vending machine. He's been storing it up, waiting for the opportune moment. He knows how to play the game. So he'd already got the beef, couldn't possibly take that away from him, um, unless we'd sort of, you know, in, had, had vomiting or something. But he got his beef and he didn't have to eat the mo- He was a cunning little boy that day. Don't know where he gets it. But he, he much prefers the taste, and when it comes to mushrooms anyway, much prefers tasting to eating. We can be a bit like that with the Bible, can't we? We prefer tasting. Easier just to quickly grab a verse, you know, on your way to work in the morning or just before bed at night and call it a day. You know, skim through that quick devotional, you know, whatever that verse is, yep, 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 onto the next thing, you know. For most of us, as long as you glance at that verse that's cross-stitched on the wall of your kitchen as you head out the door, that's a quiet time. Right? That's good. That's good. I've seen something that was vaguely to do with the Bible, that embroidery. You know, and we are, we're, we're we're fast-paced, chaotic people, and we just grab. You know, maybe it's the verse of the day on the iPhone or whatever it is, and we have these little taste. We taste. We're okay at tasting little morsels of Scripture, but that's not consuming. That's not eating the scroll. God asks us. He invites us to do something more with the Bible than just taste it. He wants us to ingest it. And that's going to take time. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take practice. And I think it's going to take a different way of approaching the Bible. I learned a lot about this from Eugene Pedersen, the guy that wrote the message translation of the Bible. And he talks about how for most of us, well, all of us, when we come to the Bible, when you, when you physically open your Bible, you might have it on your lap right now and just go through this exercise. When you open your Bible and you look at the words on the page, the dominant mode that we tend to approach the Bible in is reading. Right? Straightforward enough. Because as soon as you open a book, your brain immediately tells you, this is a book, this is literature, you need to get into reading mode. And so your brain shifts into reading mode, and reading is primarily about comprehension. It's primarily about absorbing information so that you can process information, so that you can comprehend information. Now all of that's good and all of that's necessary, but when you're in reading mode, that's as far as your brain goes. And Eugene Peterson points out that for most of the Bible's history, the dominant way that it's been received is not through reading. In fact, it wasn't until the invention of the printing press in the 15th century that most people started reading their Bibles at all. Before that, and going right back to the time when these books were first put together, what was the dominant way that people received the Bible? Listening. Had to be. People weren't reading their Bibles before the Gutenberg printing press. They were showing up in church and hearing it. They were listening and finding ways to listen to it at other times and other ways. You go right back to the original audiences of the Bible. You think about John's churches in these cities in the Mediterranean. They weren't sitting around reading Revelation. They were hearing it. They were listening to it. In fact, Revelation... Places a premium on listening. Listen to the third verse of the book, Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. The Bible is meant for listening. And listening involves a different part of our brain to reading. When you're reading something, it's largely impersonal. It's words on a page, it's information to you. When you're listening, you're still understanding, you're still comprehending, but it's more, it's more personal. Because when you're listening to something spoken by someone, it's a living word coming from a person, spoken to another person, often said in the context of a relationship, it's somehow more dynamic it's somehow more alive, it's somehow more personal, and it somehow has a way of getting past our defenses and into our gut more than just reading words on a page. If you've listened to the Bible on MP3 or CD, you know this experience. It is a different experience, isn't it, than just reading it on a page? I've found that the times that I've done it. It does engage different senses, it does somehow sweep you more into the drama of what's actually happening. It's more of a holistic experience than just a kind of cerebral thing where I'm trying to understand words on a page. So one obvious application here is get yourself the Bible on MP3. It's a very valuable process of of understanding, listening, soaking up what's going on in the Bible. But there's more than that. This is not just a plug for having the Bible spoken to you. I think even when we open the Bible as a book, We need to think about listening, not just reading. In other words, when you read verses, when you read passages, when you read chapters, don't just think about your eyes. Think about your ears. Think about what you are hearing. Learn to read with your ears. And you will find this starts to engage more of your senses, more of your being, in the outworking of what's going on in the pages of the Bible. So when you read Revelation, listen and hear it as a word spoken by God. Now, it's not, in the first instance, a word spoken by God to you. That's the first disappointment to get over. It's not primarily God's word to you. It's primarily God's word to the first readers and hearers of the Bible. But through God's word spoken to them, the Spirit of God speaks to you. And the Spirit speaks through the text to our hearts. So what we need to do is get inside the experiences of these people. We need to listen to what John would have heard when this angel showed up. Understand and experience what this would have been for him to have this angel hold out the scroll and say, eat this book. What would that have been like for him? What would it have sounded like? What would it have tasted like? See, what we're talking about here is developing a biblical imagination. And I'm not talking about fanciful imagination. Imagination tends to get a bad rap because we think fairy tales. A disciplined imagination. An imagination to hear and to experience and to place yourselves in the shoes and in the stories and in the lives of those in the scriptures and hear this word being spoken to them so that through that experience God might speak it to you. This is not fanciful stuff. I remember this quote from Warren Wearsby. He said, Fancy wrote... Mary had a little lamb. Biblical imagination wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. That's the difference. This is using our imagination and engaging our senses to translate the majestic attributes of God in images and concepts and pictures that are already provided for us in the Bible that we can allow into our hearts at a deeper level. So learn to read with your ears. Learn to listen. And you will find yourself drawn into the Bible in a new way. Engaged, you'll find yourself before long on stage rather than in the audience. You'll find yourself a participant in the action, being swept along with the flow of the drama and in fact living this out in your life. This is what it means to consume, to eat this book. So use biblical imagination and listen. Listen well when you read. Now look at what happens to John here as he ingests the word of God. As he ingests the scroll, the angel says to him, Take this and eat it. It's going to turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And for John, this was so true. You know, it was sweet in his mouth, it was like honey. He was exposed to these amazing visions of the the, the heavenly throne room scene and and given secrets and information and images that, that we don't even get. He didn't even pass some of the stuff along to us. An amazing experience. But at the same time, it turned his stomach sour because he's seeing destruction. He's seeing judgment. He's having to pass along some disturbing images of what is coming for those kingdoms and empires and those who follow something else or someone else other than the lamb. It was a bittersweet experience for John, eating the scroll. And so it will be for us as we consume this book in our lives. There will be times, there will be passages in here, that you're reading, and it's going to be as sweet as honey in your mouth, like Psalm 103 that Andrew read this morning. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. He pardons all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit. That's wonderful. That's that's honey. And we need that. We need to find that encouragement in the Scriptures. It's there. We need to find that strength, those words of grace, those words of lifting us up when we're downtrodden. But there's also times you're going to read stuff and listen to stuff in here that is going to give you indigestion. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a hard word. Those are the kinds of teaching that led a lot of people to turn away from following Jesus. This is to... Who can receive this kind of teaching? We're going to go follow this rabbi. He doesn't ask as much. He allows us to absorb God into our existing life, worldview, comfort zone. Jesus doesn't seem to be willing to do that. You're going to come across stuff in the Bible that is very disturbing, and it's confronting to you, and it's challenging, and it turns your stomach sour. And every impulse in your body in that moment is going to want to gloss over it and go on to something much more palatable. Please resist that urge. Stay with it. Let that text do its work in your heart. Let the Spirit of God search your heart through the words of Scripture. Stay with it. Stay in it. Much as it's uncomfortable and much as it's painful because that's how you grow. Not just by going to your hobby horse verses, not just by only reading the ones that are cross-stitched on your kitchen, but by reading the fullness of the Bible. And when it hits you, And when God really speaks to you, don't turn away at that point. Turn towards it. Embrace it. Allow God to put his finger on whatever nerve he's putting his finger on. Even as you're reading the passage this morning, maybe God's doing this. Don't just silence that voice. Turn into it and turn towards it. And prayerfully go through the process of talking with God about what he wants to show you and how he wants to change you through what you are reading and listening to His Word. We have to allow the Bible to do its full work in our lives, and that's going to be both bitter and sweet. Don't just have a sweet tooth when it comes to the Bible. So a couple of quick questions, practical questions, as we finish today. Do you have a regular practice, a daily practice, of feeding on the Word of God? I know we're busy people. I know we live chaotic lives. And I know we are consumed largely by the stuff of life that we're dealing with every day. But somehow you find time to eat, don't you? Amidst all of that, amazingly enough, you do find time somehow, I assume by the fact you're sitting here this morning, you found time to eat yesterday. You found some time to get some food into your body to give you the strength for that day and the one after. Is our spiritual health any less important? Is our transformation into the image of God, any more, any less important? Is our relationship with God any less important? I know it's hard to find the time, but I've come to believe it's not really a matter of time, it's a matter of priority. Because we're all time poor, but we tend to make time for things that are important to us, don't we? still amazing how much time you can spend on Facebook. Amazing how much time you can find for the gym. Amazing how little time we seem to have to read the Word of God. It's really not about whether or not you've got time. It's really about whether this is important. Whether you see it as central, whether you honestly believe that without this you're going to be stunted in your spiritual growth, or whether this is just peripheral to you. Perhaps that's what God's putting His finger on for you this morning. How important is this scroll? And secondly, when you do feed on this, are you prepared to really consume it? Really ingest it? No more tasting, no more chewing it up and spitting it out. Let's be consumers. We seem to be brilliant consumers in a lot of ways when it comes to products, services, and experiences. Not such great consumers, maybe, when it comes to the Word of God. Let's really internalize. It's going to take time, yes. It's going to mean slowing down. It's going to mean discipline of time and place and trying to eliminate distraction. It may mean reading less. There's no great badge of honor in reading 10 chapters of the Bible each day. Maybe for you it's reading 10 verses instead and letting them go deep and really chewing it over and really turning that back into prayer towards God, praying the scriptures. Turn your Bible into a prayer book. It's another great way of internalizing the scriptures. And maybe next time you're sitting there with the Bible and you're cold and you'd rather be doing a million other things, you're exhausted, perhaps just imagine yourself in John's shoes with that mighty angel in front of him, holding out that scroll. Imagine that angel in front of you, holding out this book and saying to you, take it and eat it. It'll turn your stomach sour, but it'll be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And that might just change the way you see this book a little bit. So here it is. Eat this book. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God. Your word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. God, this morning we want to recommit ourselves to being people of the book, people of your word, people who take seriously the role of scripture in our own formation into your image. And God, we commit ourselves to, to a practice of feeding on your word just as we feed on physical food. We want to be that committed to feeding on your word because there we find life, and there we find nourishment, and there we find you. We meet you in the pages of your word. And God, for the times that it's hard, for the times that we're tired, for the times that we can't be bothered, or for the times that we don't understand what we're reading, or we're overwhelmed by what we're reading, give us perseverance and give us strength in the assurance that even though we might not be able to understand everything, this is still nourishing us at a deep level. This is still our daily bread. Help us to prioritize it. Help us to truly eat this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90, 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.